I do have a few copies of the passage I wanted us to look at briefly tonight. If you want to have one of those, um, Mikey, will you help? Yeah. If if you want, it's John chapter 11. But if you want to, uh, if you want to look at it on a piece of paper, then raise your hand, and Mike can give you one. Um, I know it's already nine o'clock, so I'm not going to talk um, very long. But I, I just wanted to. Well, I, I was thinking, what should we? talk about tonight. It didn't seem like we should talk about marriage part one. And I was going to talk about sex, but Wendy was like, you can't talk about sex before marriage. You just did dating. That seems like the wrong order. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> so we're going <clears> to, <throat> I actually was listening this weekend to um, this new biography of Tim Keller, which is really, you know, he's the pastor in New York City, been a very influential pastor, particularly in the last 25 years in America and around the world, and um, <clears throat> it's, it's basically a biography about kind of the influences and the things that have shaped him, um, which has actually been really, um, it's been really sweet for me to listen because so many of the influences that shaped him shaped me maybe 10, 15 years later, but um, I, I remember, you know, he was pastoring in New York City when 9-11 happened, and um, the sermon that he gave that Sunday after was on this passage, and he called it The Weeping and the Rage. And, and both of those are important to, um, to understand the real Jesus. The real Jesus is full of both when things like this happen. And I wish I'd known that when I was your age. My uh, senior year in high school, my best friend who was going to be my roommate in college at Berkeley College of Music, Jamie Griffin was murdered by another friend of ours. I didn't, we didn't actually know really what happened for 10 years. It was just this thing where he disappeared. We knew it wasn't good. We knew this kid, Michael, was involved. We didn't know what happened. It took 10 years before they found the body. It was a horrific thing. It was traumatizing, and I remember what added to the difficulty for me was bad theology, thinking if I'm a Christian, then I really shouldn't cry about this because I know that Jamie's with God now. And I know that when I sit with his parents, he was an only child, they were older. Um, that's really sad, but ultimately we shouldn't be grieving. And that was awful theology. Um, I've sat through these sorts of things on the other side too many times. Honestly, my first year out of seminary, a uh, pastor on staff with me was brutally stabbed and murdered by his son-in-law. And I had to go pick up his college-age sons at the airport because nobody else at the church had ever met these kids. They were not walking with Jesus, but they had agreed to meet with me. I'd met with them a few times. And um, it just never gets easier. It never gets easier. But I, I want you to understand that you don't have to pretend that these sorts of things are okay because they're not okay. And, um, and, and God, through this passage in John 11, gives us such, such a beautiful picture of a Jesus who dignifies our tears, even invites them, uh, but also doesn't just passively, um, he doesn't just passively weep, but he actually takes justice into his own hands. There's this great passage in Isaiah where it talks about how God looked and he saw there was no justice. 
So his own right hand worked justice for him. And it's one of the servant songs. It's talking about Jesus coming. And here in this passage, we see that Jesus, who is both the one who weeps, the shortest verse in the Bible is in John 11 here, but also the one who rages at death and invites us to do both of those things. So I'm going to read this passage. I'm just going to say a few things about it. John 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that the God's son may be glorified through it. Lest you be confused, John tells us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jewish leadership tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by daylight will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had come out to meet him. When the Jews who'd been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he'd been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Lord, bless even the reading of your holy word. Ask you now to help us as we ponder this text for a few minutes. Send your spirit to help in Jesus' name. Amen. Said, this is a, a passage. It's fascinating. There's some perplexing elements here. And usually when you have confusing, perplexing elements in these gospel accounts, it's usually because Jesus wants to reveal something about who he is and what he's come to do. The first question, of course, is why does he delay? And, and John, I think, expects that we might be confused with, by that because in verse 5, he wants to make sure you understand Jesus loves these people, yet he delays. It doesn't seem like he does the loving thing. He waits two days, but note when he arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four. When you factor in the time, for the messenger to get to Jesus, we see that even if he had left right away, Lazarus would have died. But he waits until it's clear that Lazarus is dead beyond hope. Now to understand that, you need to understand this cultural detail. The Jews believed that the soul hovered over the body for three days. That isn't in the Bible, it was just their uh, belief. They believed that the soul hovered over the body for three days, but by day four, there is no hope. Jesus waits until Lazarus has been in the tomb for days. And so you have to ask why. He tells us in verse four and verse five, it's because he loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and it's for God's glory that the God's son might be glorified through it. But not only that, down in verse 15, he says, Lazarus is dead and for your sake, the disciples, I'm glad I was not there that you might believe. And then down in verse 45, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. There are all kinds of reasons Jesus does what he does and we don't always have access to understanding them. And if we don't have the word of God writing it down in black and white, we must always be careful about thinking we understand why God does what he does in particular ways. Jesus loved them, but he had more that he was intending 
even than just that. He does not delay because he's afraid of the Jews. And, and you see that. He had every right to be afraid of the Jews. The disciples are kind of freaked out. We're going back to Bethany? What are you, crazy? Thomas even thinks we might as well go with him because this is the end. But Jesus is not afraid. He's not afraid. Even though, as we see at the very end of the story, this is what finally was the straw that broke the camel's back for the Jewish leadership. When the word about this gets back to the Jewish leadership, this is the thing that caused them to call a meeting and say, we have got to deal with this. We have got to put him to death. And Jesus knew that, and he went anyway. This is not some backwoods place far away from the notice of the Jewish leadership. This is only two miles from Jerusalem, and there's lots of people from Jerusalem who've come out to weep with Mary and Martha. I think about um, our neighbors, because I can't think of this scene without thinking about our next door neighbors. Some of you know our neighbors are um, Kurdish. They're from Iraq, and the practices around death and funerals are very similar. Um, years ago, one of the, the sons of that family was shot down and killed at a nightclub um, on Nolensville Road. And, um, you know, the, 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 just the scene, the community come together. Wendy got to be with the weeping women, you know, honored to be in that setting, just sitting there um, with the bereaved. And, and I got to sit outside with the men drinking little cups of coffee. Um, but, but exactly this kind of event, this is what the Jews did. They would all come out and mourn and weep together. And even when Mary gets up, they all, they're going to go with her and see and not leave her alone in her grief. Here's the thing I want you to get from this first part here. Jesus' love is often confusing to us in the moment. So often we want him to do the immediate thing that we think will make things better when he has in fact planned to do the better thing. But that doesn't mean that you have to figure out tonight, how can this be the better thing? I have no idea. And I'm so thankful that God doesn't ask us to figure that out. But as we sang in that song, O oh, oh heart bereaved and lonely, question all you will. His arms of peace and mercy are round about you still. My prayer is that this would not be the kind of thing that would drive those with faith that is barely hanging on away from the precious love of Jesus. And I really do long for that. Jesus is the one who it says would not snuff out a smoldering wick that would not break a bruised reed that is just barely hanging on. And I pray that you would know him as that precious, kind, compassionate Savior. All right. So look here at the two, the two ways he responds to these sisters. It's so fascinating because they both say the same thing. It's very obvious you're to get this point from this passage. They both say the same thing, and he answers one with words and one with tears, and both are necessary. Both Mary and Martha need both, actually. They both need to know that Jesus cares. They both need to know that the resurrection is coming and that God will put death to death one day. The way the Apostle Paul says it to the Thessalonians in a letter he writes to them when they're grieving so many in their community who have died, he says, we grieve. We grieve, but not without 
hope. Tears and truth, both are necessary. Jesus is the wonderful counselor and knows what we need, and get this, when we're ready to hear it. And he has way more patience with us than we have with ourselves. Jesus approaches the tomb with tears. I want to talk about this at the end here. Verse 33, why does he do this? Because it isn't supposed to be that way. I think whenever we have these sorts of situations, it's so important to remember if the brokenness of this world bothers you, and I hope it does, I know it does, think how how it must affect the heart of Jesus. The one who created all things and knew what it was like before sin and death entered the world, right? He cares about those who are suffering. He cares not just about Mary and Martha, but his heart is broken for the crowd that's there as well. All these people weeping, how overwhelming it must be to him to sit in the midst of all this sorrow and all this sadness, even though he knows he's gonna resurrect him. He knew that before he even went there. He says as much. And he, and he says, I want you to know, it's good for you to know that I know what I'm going to do, and yet still, he weeps. He weeps. He doesn't attack Mary for her tears. He doesn't scold the crowd for weeping with their friend. He doesn't tell her to buck up. He doesn't get mad at the people weeping, wondering where their faith is. Oh, there are times, Jesus condemns people for lack of faith. That's not what he does here. He doesn't do that here with these weeping people at all. That's not the problem. And oh, like I said, I needed someone to tell me that when I was your age. Because lament is appropriate, even for those who know that Jesus will fix things someday. Jesus, in his wailing, dignifies lament. I was so helped by an article I read years ago by a guy, Nicholas Walterstorff, who was the head of the philosophy department, um, not only at Calvin, but he was at Yale as well, and um, finally at UVA. His son died in a climbing accident, and he wrote an incredibly powerful book called Lament for a Son. But he also wrote this article, If God is Sovereign, Why Lament? And, and, and he says this, that lament is giving voice to the suffering that accompanies deep loss, and it has three parts, and I want you to hear this. To voice our suffering, we must name it and own it as part of our story. True lament is not just the voice of suffering, it's a cry to God for deliverance. The cry, why, oh God, is this happening? Oh long, how long, oh God? I don't understand. I can't see your hand in this darkness. But notice it's a cry to God. Lament has the kernel of faith in it because of the direction, not because everything's fine. It's crying out to God. I hope if you ever, I know a lot of you maybe will lead worship either professionally or just as a volunteer in your church one day, and I'm sure that so many of you will be greatly needed in that respect, but I pray that you will never say at the beginning of a worship service, Lord, we just want to leave all those distractions at the door and come in here and worship you, because that's deeply unbiblical. 
Worship is the place where we bring our tears and our anger and our confusion all before the very face of God. And that's what he invites us to do. All of that stuff is welcome here. Third, true lament has one more component. It's an expression of the endurance of faith. It's almost putting, putting a, a sort of a stake in the ground, and it's in this little biblical word, yet. So true lament speaks honestly about the brokenness. It cries out the direction toward God. Like I said, it's born out of faith in a God that we believe cares about these things and whose heart is also broken. It says also in Isaiah, in all his people's distress, he too is distressed. You need to know that. But that word yet will I trust him. That word yet, it's a little word, but it's so important to understand because it's saying no matter what, no matter what I don't understand, yet I will trust him. Not because I understand this, but because of what I do know about him and who he is and what he's done. And that brings us to the end of what I wanna talk about tonight. Jesus weeps. But he also approaches the tomb of his friend with rage. And this is something that the translators really struggle with. There's really not any English translation that really translates this as powerfully as it should be. Verse 33 and verse 38 contain a word that is incredibly difficult to translate. The NIV translates it deeply moved in spirit. Yet there's only one other New Testament use of this word, and it's translated, they rebuked her harshly. It's used of the Pharisees when they react to the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil in Mark 14. There they understand, the translators, the anger that's in it. They rebuked her harshly. The word is actually a pretty common word outside of the New Testament. And it literally means to snort or bellow with anger like an animal. It's the word you would use for a war horse that is about to plunge into battle, pawing at the ground, snorting with rage. About the only translation that really has the courage to get it right is the message by Eugene Peterson. He translates John 11:38 this way, Jesus quaking with rage. And that's what's going on here. He's weeping and he's quaking with rage. Why? It can't just be about Lazarus, because he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and turn all of the weeping around him to joy in just a few minutes. Perhaps he's not just weeping about this funeral, but is seeing all the funerals in history that should have never been. Jesus weeps and wails but he also rages at death. Look at what happens in verse 45 and 46. This is the thing that seals his death warrant, and he knew it. He knew it. He has the choice as he stands before the tomb. He had the choice before he ever went to Bethany. You see the intentionality of him taking on death by sealing his own death warrant. 
See, he raises Lazarus, of course, but he's going to die again. And the only way that he can put an end to all funerals is for his own death. And he doesn't back down. Tim Keller says it's as if he stands at the tomb and says, come on, death, let's rumble. That's who our God is. And we need to understand that he doesn't just weep like an impotent little savior. He rages at death and he puts an end to death. This is why Hebrews chapter two says that he set us free from the fear of death, from the one who holds power over us by the fear of death by putting death to death. In Colossians, Paul says it this way, that when he, when he died on the tomb, he disarmed the powers and the principalities and everything that stood opposed to us, he committed himself to the confrontation that would seal his death warrant and break the power of death. Last thought, there's an incredible article, had a wise mentor, particularly as I was struggling to know how to feel things, said, you really should read this article by B.B. Warfield. Isn't that a great theologian name? Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, old uh, professor at Princeton Theological Seminary in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. It's called this, On the Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he does a lot of uh, talking about this passage. I won't read the whole thing. I put some quotes there for you. But he, he, he says what you need to understand is death is the object of Jesus' wrath here. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come, Jesus has come in the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage. And he advances to the tomb, in the words John Calvin uses, as a champion who prepares for conflict. And then Warfield says this, the raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated miracle, but a decisive instance, an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the very heart of Jesus as he wins for us salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression and under the power of these feelings has wrought our redemption. When we observe him exhibiting his human emotions, we are gazing upon the very process of our salvation. Every manifestation of the truth of our Lord's humanity is an exhibition of the reality of our redemption. He was made like us in every way, yet without sin, Hebrews 2 says. In his sorrows, he was bearing our sorrows, and having passed through a human life like ours, he remains forever able to be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. We see Jesus emotionally engaged in doing battle for us. He doesn't just weep, he battles for us with rage. The one who knows all of our anguish, who felt it more than we do because he knew how skewed the post-fall world really was, is the one who rages against evil 
And you might ask this question, why didn't he just snap his fingers and wipe out sin and suffering? But don't you understand, for him to wipe out sin and suffering by snapping his fingers would be to wipe out all of us. There's nobody in this room that would last. For him to defeat death without destroying us requires his own suffering. Remember this, even Jesus cannot love without suffering and neither can you and I. Some of you didn't even know these people. You didn't know any of them, but your tears are beautiful. And they show that you love, and as we've talked about before, if you love, it's because God is love, and has given you love, and has given you sympathy. Um, at the prayer meeting last night, my friend David Filson said, fear, or guilt, or sorry, grief often feels so much like fear and we hate it because we wanna know what to do, we wanna know how to fix it, we want to not feel out of control, but we don't have the power. We don't have the power. It's good to enter into the reality of our weakness and know that we have one who is a champion on our behalf and who has put death to death. Let me pray and then we're gonna sing a couple songs to conclude tonight. Lord, thank you for this picture where you show us the very heart of Jesus. Because Lord, in times like this, that's what we need. We need to see the very heart of Jesus. We need to know that you're not just distantly up on a throne somewhere observing what's going on. We need to know you're emotionally engaged in this world. We need to know that you are a God with scars, that you care, but you don't just weep. You also rage and you also did something to put death to death. Thank you. Amen.